Good morning, and thank you for joining me on the Path to Liberty. I'm Michael Bolden with the Tenth Amendment Center, and this is the Fast Friday edition of the show for August 19th, 2022. And on this episode, I'm talking a bit about the aggressive pace that federal agencies are being increasingly militarized. A lot of people that I respect have been warning for a long time that this is actually the standing army the founding generation feared, despised, and warned us about. So I've got some insight on this from James Madison, George Mason, Samuel Adams, a few others. Plus an overview of what's happening in a great new article by John and Nisha Whitehead over at the Rutherford Institute. But first of all, before getting to that, a quick hello and a huge thank you. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Whether this is your first episode or you've been here for every single one since day one, we've been doing this show for over four years now. I started out as a fun hobby, and I absolutely love doing this show and sharing what I'm learning along the way with you, building a community in support of the Constitution and liberty. I never expected it to reach and teach as many people as we have, but thanks to you sharing and spreading the words, we certainly are doing that and more. But since it's Fast Friday, I promise to not take up too much of your time. Let's see if I can get this info out to you in the next 10 to 15 minutes. And I should point out that if you want to follow along with the articles, original source documents, and the like that I'm mentioning in this episode, you can do that for this episode and every episode. I have an individual blog post for each episode over at our show homepage, 10thamendmentcenter.com slash path to liberty. It's all spelled out, 10thamendmentcenter.com slash path to liberty. Let's start out with the so-called father of the Constitution, James Madison. So here he is in the Philadelphia Convention, July 29th, I think, 1787. He said, a standing military force with an overgrown executive will not long be safe companions to liberty. He continued, he said, the means of defense against foreign danger have been always the instruments of tyranny at home. Not sometimes, not once in a while, not most of the time, and definitely not just the other people doing it. Always, always. And Madison was a great student of history. He said, among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war whenever a revolt was apprehended. So, okay, you got a problem going on at the seat of power? Well, start a war with the country over there and you'll distract the people. And we see that happen in modern times as well. He said throughout all Europe, the armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. Madison was no tinfoil hat wearing guy, but he recognized what we see today, that when government tells you it's for your safety, more often than not, maybe all the time, it really means so we can control you. Here's an interesting take on this. I don't agree with everything that they say in describing Madison, but it's an interesting take, uh, some perspective from teachinghistory.org. They say that Madison, one of the most vocal proponents of a strong centralized government, an author of the Federalist Papers and the architect of the Constitution, a little overstated there, but could evince such strongly negative feelings against a standing army, highlights the substantial differences in thinking about national security in America, between the 18th century and the 21st. It's a huge difference. Polls today, they point out, generally indicate that Americans think of the military in glowing terms, using uh, things like sacrifice, honor, valor, bravery, etc. Americans of the 18th century took a much dimmer view of the institution of a professional army. A near universal assumption, and I would go out on a limb and say universal, they all saw standing armies, large, permanent ones especially, as being dangerous to liberty. But they say a near-universal assumption of the founding generation was the danger posed by a standing military force. 
far from being composed of honorable citizens dutifully serving the interests of the nation, armies were held to be, quote, nurseries of vice, dangerous, and the grand engine of despotism. I could go through countless quotes on this. I'm just going to highlight a few. Elbridge Jerry called standing armies the bane of liberty. George Mason said, when and mind you, in this quote from Mason, he's specifically saying, I have great respect for people who are in the military, but when once a standing army is established in any country, just like Madison, not some, not a few, not a here and there, and not just over there, but in any country, the people lose their liberty. Here from the great hero Joseph Warren in his Massacre Day oration of March 75, 1775, standing armies always endanger the liberty of the subject. And just think about that. He's giving an oration commemorating the massacre in Boston, March of 1775, just before Lexington and Concord. They knew what was up. Here's Samuel Adams. A standing army is always dangerous to the liberties of the people. Now, for years, I've had people that I respect tell me that militarized police on a state or a local level or on a national level, federal level, are basically the standing army that this uh, that the founding generation warned us about. And I can certainly understand that sentiment, especially when you consider the fact that the feds are, for example, with local police, sending military-grade gear and equipment and funding, and then getting local police to act as federal agents to focus on federal enforcement priorities in what they call joint task forces. But there certainly are some technical dif differences still between a militarized, federal prioritized local police force being equipped and funded by the feds for federal purposes and an official professional standing army. For example, there's the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. There's the training, which is getting more and more militarized for police agencies. And then you've got one side that, for at least employees, is much closer to at-will employment. The other is definitely not. But I do see the practical effect of this being still very close to the dangers we were warned about, if not worse, and maybe even more so when you think about militarized federal agents and militarized federal agencies. John and Nisha Whitehead have a great new article that was just published this week over at Rutherford Institute that's kind of cataloging a few of the things that we see happening. For example, they write, the IRS has stockpiled 4,500 guns, and 5 million rounds of ammunition in recent years, including 621 shotguns, 539 long-barreled rifles, and 15 submachine guns for the IRS. The Veterans Administration purchased 11 million rounds of ammo, equivalent to 2,800 rounds for each of their officers, along with camo uniforms, riot helmets and shields, specialized image enhancement devices, and tactical lighting. The Department of Health and Human Services acquired 4 million rounds of ammo in addition to 1,300 guns, including five submachine guns and 189 automatic firearms for its Office of Inspector General. Health and Human Services. This, uh, this and more come from a report, the militarization of the U.S. executive agencies between the years 2015 through 2019 from Open the Books. It's a really interesting report. I will link to it. In the show notes over at 10thamendmentcenter.com, 
slash path to liberty. But according to that report, we've got other things like the Social Security Administration secured 800,000 rounds of ammo for their special agents, as well as armor and guns. The EPA owns at least 600 guns. And the Smithsonian now has 620 armed special agents. And also from that report via Forbes, they point out that there are now more non-Department of Defense federal employees with firearms, over 200,000. And this was uh, from a couple of years ago, so I'm sure it's much higher now. 200,000 plus non-DOD federal employees with firearms than there are Marines, which is 186,000. So there's an argument that this is a nationalized kind of a military force. They say that 27 traditional law enforcement agencies spent $800 million on guns, ammo, and military-style equipment during 2015 through 2019. This includes the Department of Justice and Homeland Security. And then they say 76 administrative agencies, so things like the IRS, EPA, Social Security, etc., spent over $110 million on guns, ammo, and military-style equipment in those same years. It's insane the amount of loot that they're stealing from us to uh, equip their people with probably a lot of weaponry that they don't want you to ever be able to have access to in the first place. So that's a pretty dangerous situation when government is armed to the teeth and people are increasingly not for many people. I know a lot of people are definitely doing their best to do so, but it's going in the wrong direction when I read this. And here's how John and Nisha put it over at Rutherford Institute. This de facto standing army, and I think I'm pretty well convinced that that's what we're looking at here, is made up of weaponized, militarized civilian forces, which look like, dress like, and act like the military. I mean, really, it's one of those, if it walks like a duck, acts like a duck, What I don't know, you know the phrase, it's probably a duck, right? They are armed with guns, ammo, and military-style equipment. They're authorized to make arrests and are trained in military tactics. Many of them are ex-military as well. Mind you, they say, this de facto standing army of bureaucratic, administrative, non-military, paper-pushing, non-traditional law enforcement agencies may look and act like the military, but remember, they are not the official military. Rather, they are foot soldiers of the police state's standing army, and they are growing in number at an alarming rate. I believe that the number of them have tripled over the last couple of decades. This really kind of grew out of the war on drugs in the 70s and 80s. But you can read through their article and learn a little bit more about that. But this is a really great kind of overview, I think, of what we're facing. And they say that now we find ourselves struggling to retain some semblance of freedom in the face of administrative police and law enforcement agencies that look and act like the military with little to no regard for the Fourth Amendment. Laws such as the National Defense Authorization Act, which the 2012 version authorized indefinite detention. They say they allow the military to arrest and indefinitely detain American citizens and military drills that acclimate the American people to the sight of armored tanks in the streets. I've actually encountered that here. Military encampments in cities and combat aircraft patrolling overhead. The menace, they write, of a national police force, this is also known as a st standing army or a de facto one, I think is the best way to describe it, vested with the power to completely disregard the Constitution, and that's what they do every single day. Most of these agencies 
shouldn't even exist. So their very existence is a violation of the Constitution, is a disregard of the Constitution. And any enforcement action they're taking is a violation of the Constitution. And any money that they're stealing from us to outfit them in all this gear is a violation of the Constitution. They need to get a job, really, rather than rip us all off. But anyways, vested with the power to completely disregard the Constitution, the danger of this cannot be overstated, nor can its danger be ignored. And I think that's a really important point. We certainly have a large permanent standing army, an official one, and the founders absolutely warned against that. We know they did this because of their own experience, like the massacre in Boston, Lexington and Concord, and why they opposed these permanent professional standing armies so much. We can hear this over and over and over from their words, their writing, and the like. But that doesn't mean, and just like John and Nisha Whitehead said, we can't ignore the dangers of this other, this de facto standing army, just because it doesn't meet the technical definition of a professional military force. Uh, because in many ways, the this other one, this de facto kind of militarized police version on a state, federal, and a national level is actually doing the things that the founding generation warned us that a standing army would do through all its enforcement actions of stuff that they're not authorized to have on the books in the first place. Good morning, and thank you for joining me on the Path to Liberty. I'm Michael Bolden with the Tenth Amendment Center, and this is the show for Monday, August 22nd, 2022. And today I've got a follow-up to last Friday's episode, which I hope you'll check out if you haven't yet. I will give you guys a, a link and a mention of that in just a few minutes. But that was an episode on how militarized federal agencies like the IRS, the FBI, even Social Security Administration have really become a sort of a de facto standing army, the one that the founders warned would be incredibly dangerous to liberty. So on this episode, I want to take that another step and go through the top four ways that the feds have been doing pretty much the same with an endless list of state and local law enforcement agencies around the country, turning them into a militarized, de facto, unconstitutional national police force. But I appreciate you guys being here again. TenthAmendmentCenter.com slash path to liberty to follow along with the stuff that I'm talking about and previous episodes like last Friday's episode, militarized federal agencies, the other standing army. And that's where I talked about things like the IRS, Social Security, HHS, and everything in between being so geared up and trained. Like, why does uh, the Smithsonian need so many armed guards? Well, maybe. I don't know. Someone's going to, someone will have an excuse for all of them. But in essence, most of what they're doing and most of these agencies in the first place shouldn't even exist. So if they're enforcing stuff, they're doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. And then if they're stealing money to militarize them to make sure they can enforce even more, the layers of unconstitutionality are just insane. So I will link to that over in the show notes over at 10thamendmentcenter.com slash path to liberty. But again, it's not just this de facto federal standing army that we have to deal with. The feds have been doing this for decades, working to expand and control local police as well. We got to remember that every time there's some federal funding to get us more cops, that funding comes with federal strings. They want those cops to do more and more federal stuff because it's hard for them to expand their own federal army. I mean, you see, there's starting to be some pushback on it. The more they try to do that, the more resistance. But for some reason, a lot of people who resist the federal 
uh, militarization of federal agencies. Love seeing it happen on a state and local level. Anyways, here from John and Nisha Whitehead, which really they put together the great article that I really relied on heavily on Friday's episode. But they also mentioned, and they've done a lot of work on this over at Rutherford Institute, about federal militarization of local police as well. And they point out in that same article that the militarization of America's police forces in recent decades, this is not new, and it's not partisan, it happens across the board, has merely sped up the timeline by which the nation is transformed into an authoritarian regime. What began as the militarization of the police in the 1980s, and I actually think it kind of started before that because the SWAT team kind of buildup started in the 70s and the 60s after race riots and things like that, and we also saw the first kind of more militarized uh, local police in response to alcohol prohibition. So there are some more historical precedents for this kind of thing, but it really did ramp up in the 80s, as they say, during the government's war on drugs. It has snowballed into a full-fledged integration of military weaponry, technology, and tactics into police protocol. It's not, oh man, it is not protect and serve. They're not peace officers. They're law enforcement officers. It's command and control, really. To our detriment, he, they write, local police clad in jackboots, helmets and shields and wielding batons, pepper spray, stun guns and assault rifles have increasingly come to resemble occupying forces in our communities. And I'm going to get to the top four ways that the feds are doing this. And every time the feds get involved, the feds get control and whatever political team is in power, well, they're going to push them in that direction. And it's generally not in line with the Constitution and it's generally not in support of your liberty. But the two major justifications that they give for this, and they really do merge, and I'm going to talk about that for just a moment. First of all, I think the number one reason, and John and Nisha talked about this as well. They mentioned it. It's really ramped up in the 80s with the war on drugs. So it starts with the war on drugs. And I've got a, an episode that I've mentioned a few times recently, the Constitution on the War on Drugs. I will link to that in the show notes. But the overview, I think, really sums it up. Few programs have done such consistent and sweeping damage to the original legal meaning of the Constitution as the so-called war on drugs. We get so many justifications to protect us from the terror that is the war on drugs. You'll get the pun that I had there in just a moment. From foreign policy to domestic surveillance to uh, no-knock warrants uh, to civil asset forfeiture, to gun control. They're all connected in the war on drugs. Radley Balco has done some of the greatest work on this out there. Not always right on, but it's really, really a, a large body of work on this federal militarization of police. And here he is in an article a few years ago from the Wall Street Journal. He said, during the Reagan administration, SWAT team methods, which really started in the 70s, and a lot of places, a lot of uh, local governments actually rejected the idea of creating this and federal joint task forces, which I'll get to in just a moment. They didn't really want to get in, but they kept eh, plying them with federal money because all these politicians and all these bureaucrats, they love federal loot that they steal from us in the first place, so they want to get their dirty little hands on it. So over time, it builds up. Uh, and anyways, Radley says, by the end of the 80s, joint task forces brought together police officers and soldiers for drug interdiction. National Guard helicopters and U-2 spy planes flew the California skies in search of marijuana plants. When suspects were identified, battle-clad troops from the Guard, the DEA, and other federal and local law enforcement agencies would swoop in to eradicate the plants and capture the people growing them to protect us from a plant, Right. In 1986, here he is again in another, uh, a longer paper. It's a 103-page white paper on militarization that uh, he actually did for Cato Institute a few years ago. He said in 86, 
the president issued National Security Decision Directive that declared drugs a threat to U.S. national security. So they're combining national security to the war on drugs. And of course, the founding generation knew that they'd claim power for everything to protect you. And James Madison himself certainly warned us that always being concerned about what kind of danger the government needs to protect us about is a guarantee that we're going to lose our liberty. He said, perhaps it's the universal truth that the loss of liberty at home is to be charged against dangers real or pretended from abroad. And sometimes they're from domestically. But if you're thinking the war on drugs, a lot of the stuff they're concerned about the import, the bad guys from abroad. Anyways, for yet more cooperation, this gave us more cooperation, this uh, this presidential directive in 86 from Radley Balco. He points out that this gave us more cooperation between local, state, and federal law enforcement and the military. It is a blurring of lines between the actual professional military the National Guard, which has, well, been nationalized in many ways that it shouldn't have been since 1903. And then you have federal agencies as the de facto standing army, and then now local police becoming a federal police force. None of it is the way it should be. In 1988, he writes, Congress ordered the Guard to assist state drug enforcement efforts. Because of this order, National Guard troops today patrol for marijuana plants and assist in large-scale anti-drug operations in every state of the country. In 89, that next President Bush created a series of regional task forces within the Department of Defense. It's a military operation on the people, really, charged with facilitating cooperation between the military and domestic police forces. And then in 1994... The Department of Defense issued another memorandum authorizing the transfer of equipment and technology to state and local police. And that actually started really getting implemented a few years later. But basically, this is the military being involved in domestic policing, if not directly, but certainly manipulating what the priorities are of local police. And then 10 years earlier from that, 1994, so back in 84, the feds, with the heavy support of a certain senator from Delaware who now lives in the White House, established the federal asset forfeiture program called Equitable Sharing. This is legalized government robbery. I'm not going to get into much detail on that. I just want to mention it because that's a big part of this whole thing. Now, to me, a lot of the problems that we face really do stem from this unconstitutional war on drugs. The more that you push things in the black market, if you think about it, the more you're going to have crime. You're going to have more criminal activity. And then government then has the 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 excuse to claim that it needs this heavy-handed police militarization, these tactics to stop this crime that it helped cause in the first place. So that's one of the justifications that they use for this. And then the other one is the war on terror. And Radley Balco over at Wall Street Journal again, he says the new century brought the war on terror and with it new rationales and new resources for militarizing police forces. Again, it's fear. We know, as John Adams told us in 1776 in the time ramping up to the Declaration of Independence, he was at this is back when he was one of the good guys. He specifically said fear is the foundation of most governments because I would just remove the word most. But he recognized, like so many others did, the founders and old revolutionaries, that as long as people were scared, they were scared of freedom, scared of whatever, scared of foreign dangers, they would relinquish their liberty in order 
to get what maybe a little pretended safety, like TSA, but not real safety. Usually it's just a scam. It's a way to rip people off and to control them. So according to the Center of Investigative Reporting, back to Balco's article, the Department of Homeland Security has handed out $35 billion in grants since its creation in 2002. I think it's closer to $50 billion now with much of the money going to purchase military gear, such as armored personnel carriers. I mean, there are certainly, the IRS is armed up as a military in many ways. So is the FBI and Social Security Administration and so many, Homeland, uh, Homeland Security, without a doubt. Health and Human Services has so much military weaponry, so many arms. I'm not sure what that's for. I mean, they're gonna, they're thinking they might need it for somebody, not to get too uh, tinfoil hatty here, but they have it for a reason. And this is very similar, what Balco had to say, is very similar to what John and Nisha Whitehead had to say over at the Rutherford Institute. The numbers are a little bit different, but they point out, as Andrew Becker, Becker and G.W. Schultz report, more than $34 billion in federal government grants made available to local police agencies in the wake of 9-11 have fueled a rapid, broad transformation of police operations across the country. More than ever before, police rely on quasi-military tactics and equipment, and departments around the U.S. have transformed into small army-like forces. I think they're closer—I mean, they are militarized, but they are more like a national police force than a military force. Just as dangerous, just as illegal. All the funding programs are unconstitutional. Most of what they're enforcing is unconstitutional as well. And these two rationales, the war on drugs and the war on terror, they actually have merged in many ways— and Balco noticed this years ago, before I ever really paid attention to it as well. He said it's commonplace for police officials who want a SWAT team and all the gear and basically unlimited power that comes with those teams to attempt to assuage community concerns by arguing that the units are necessary to thwart the possibility of terrorism. That's the number one thing they say. We got to have we got to have these armored personnel carriers. We got to have these extra SWAT teams. And we have to join these joint terrorism task forces with the federal government because the terrorists might come for you and your kids. Also, school shootings, violent crime. But once they're in place, SWAT teams are inevitably used far more frequently, mostly in the service of drug warrants. I've seen in some states it's as high as like 90 some percent. So they're really just scamming us. They're playing off people being afraid rather than people exercising their natural right to keep and bear arms to, to self-defense, individual self-defense, defense of their family, defense of their property, defense of their state, and defense of their country against whatever they're afraid of. They're playing off the weakness of the American people, wanting government to protect them, and instead government is abusing them. And Nancy Murray over at Privacy SOS also talks about this merge she says the merging of the war on drugs and war on terror led to the creation of a private intelligent network known as Black Asphalt Electronic Networking and Notification System. You should look into it. It really helps fuel civil asset forfeiture, legalized government robbery. That enabled police nationwide to share detailed reports about American motorists, criminals and innocents alike, including their Social Security numbers, addresses, identifying tattoos, as well as hunches about which drives to stop. Many of the reports, she writes, have been funneled to federal agencies, always, always, and fusion centers, which sends it to everybody. I'll get to that in a moment, as part of the government's burgeoning law enforcement intelligence system. And so that brings me to number four, the top four ways that they're basically turning local police into a na unconstitutional national police force. And that is 
mass warrantless surveillance programs. And that is primarily pushed through fusion centers. If you're not familiar with them, I did an episode on this back in April. Fusion centers facilitate spying on everybody. That will, of course, be in the show notes over at 10thamendmentcenter.com slash path to liberty. And of course, they were sold to us. These are state-federal partnerships. They're often funded and run by states and maybe get a little bit of funding from the feds. But they are partnerships. And what they do is they're kind of information collection areas. They do take all kinds of surveillance tools and they feed the information to the fusion center. And then the network of these 78 to 80 of these around the country, they share the data. So if you're tracked by a drone or an automated license plate reader in Boise, Idaho, that goes into the fusion center. I'm not sure which one over there. That goes to the Fusion Center. That data gets shared with every federal agency from the Postal Service to the IRS to the DEA and to every law enforcement agency. They're going to know if they want to look you up in Honolulu, Hawaii, they can find a record of your travel as well. So that type of information is shared around and it's turned individual law enforcement agencies into a part of a broad network that really is national in its scope and in its effect. So these were sold to the public as state-federal partnerships to go after the terrorists, always. But to keep their budgets flowing, they've shifted over the years to other mass surveillance programs like the War on Drugs, keeping illegal databases of gun owners, monitoring people based on political activity, and more all bad stuff. And Mike Meharry did a report on this a while ago. Who did not turn their phone off? Sorry about that, guys. Mike Meharry did a, a report giving us a great example about how this whole mess comes together. It's called Document Unmasks Fusion Center's Participation in License Plate Surveillance. Here he shows how the North Northern California Fusion Center, the Regional Intelligence Center, it's N-C-R-I-C, takes in license, license plate tracking data and does what I was sh- talking about in that example. It feeds it into the Fusion Center, and then the Fusion Center takes that data and makes it available to federal, state, and local agencies everywhere. Now, keep in mind, those Fusion Centers... We're really supposed to be about homeland security, and they are really a great example of the war on terror and the war on drugs becoming one and the same, being used as one excuse, but really being uh, being sold with one excuse and then being used for another or vice versa. And then also keep in mind this license plate tracking program is really a drug war program. It was started by the DEA about... 10, 11 years ago now, they ran it for about eight years before they got busted. No one stopped them, but before it was reported. And it doesn't seem like enough people complained about it that there has any, been any change. And I'm not sure if complaining about it will make a change. But it was actually started by the DEA, tracking millions of people. I think they collected billions and billions of, of records over just a two-year period. But they're tracking a, the location of millions of people through automated license plate readers, which have the capability of accurately getting somewhere between, depending which system, four to 800 per minute. So they can get a heavy traffic area at high speeds, no problem. They're very accurate. Sometimes they're wrong, and then the wrong people get busted or harassed by government. But they're tracking this information for drug war purposes. Now, the DEA doesn't run a bunch of automated license plate readers. What they do is they partner with state and local law enforcement, who runs them throughout the states. They take that data, pass it along through fusion centers. The DEA gets it, and wham, bam. This is really an excellent example of how this all plays out. This mass surveillance program is really one of the big ways that they are turning local law enforcement into a national surveillance state. 
And then another part of that is something called parallel construction. I should actually do a full episode on this at some point. We haven't covered it in a number of years here. But Mike Meharry does another great article on this. He said, using a secretive process known as parallel construction. Now, we're not just talking when it comes to mass surveillance. A lot of people are like, well, you know, it's a local surveillance. What about the NSA? Well, the NSA is certainly handing information along to local police as well. And here's how. Parallel construction. Police build cases on illegally obtained warrantless data collected by the NSA and other federal agencies without anybody ever knowing. NSA, FBI, DHS, ICE, all of them. Former NSA technical director William Binney called parallel construction the most threatening situation to our republic since the Civil War. Interesting take, but I thought that was an interesting one. And Mike describes how it plays out. The feds share information gathered without a warrant. So they collect all this data. Then they take the data, they make it available, often through Fusion Center, sometimes through ISC, information sharing environment, which probably links up with Fusion Centers. So they gather the information without a warrant, violating everyone's liberty all the time, every single day. Fourth Amendment, be damned. It doesn't really count at all to the federal government. As long as people don't keep them in check, people keep supporting them. They're never going to stop. The feds share the information and direct local police forces to make an arrest. I don't know if it's always a direction from the feds. Maybe that's what it is. That's how it was covered here a few years ago. Using parallel construction, local investigators then build their case using normal policing techniques, getting warrants for information they've already obtained. The process serves to hide the illegally gathered information, creating the illusion of an of a uh, legitimate case. So parallel construction, another piece of this national surveillance state tying the NSA with local law enforcement. And then on top of it, the feds hand out all kinds of surveillance gear through various grant programs. Sometimes they give them drones. Sometimes they give them $300,000, like in Houston, to buy a single surveillance drone. Sometimes they give them what are called cell site simulators, which actually trick your uh, local your cell phone into thinking that the cell site simulator is the cell tower. It collects your data, your location, sometimes your text and voice messages, things like that. And then it just patches it through. You don't even know. You don't even know. They're just tracking you at all times. And then when the local law enforcement agencies use these things, whether they're purchasing it with their own locally stolen money, or if they're using federal stolen money through grant programs, or they just get the gear from the feds, they generally sign an NDA with the FBI. So if some smart attorney, if someone's, uh, you know, getting uh, having a problem or a court case or whatever, uh, figures out, well, how did you get this information on my client? They'll oftentimes lose the case because they'll never reveal that they used a cell site simulator because they sign this deal with the FBI. They kick it up to the feds. Sometimes it'll just become a federal case, but a real problem. Uh, but uh, ALPRs, these license plate readers, and then Kelly Sladek, who I miss. I wish she would do some writing with us again when she has time. Hopefully sometime. Doors always open. She did a great uh, short blog post on this on how local cops are getting spy gear from the feds. And that include all these things, drones and the things like that. And then all kinds of military gr grade surveillance gear, software, tools and the like. And so that's number four is the surveillance state. Number three is very similar in process, talking about handing out this equipment and grants and all that stuff. A lot of it are very similar, but uh, different versions of it. Number three is militarization. And let's start with good old Dick Cheney. And in 1989, then Secretary of Defense Dick 
Cheney declared the detection and countering of the production, trafficking and use of illegal drugs is a high priority national security mission of the Department of Defense. So if the drug war then becomes part of national security and the Department of Defense, according to Cheney, had to really get involved, we shouldn't be surprised that it helped lead to what a lot of people are familiar with, this, this 1033 program, which was actually officially launched. I know I mentioned 1994, but it was launched in the 1997 National Defense Authorization Program, National Defense Authorization Act of 97. 1033 is the name of the section in law in the code. But it's really one of just three major federal programs that is giving cash or military-grade equipment to local law enforcement. And the end result is the same, whether they get the direct gear or money to actually buy it. Maybe the money version is even worse because who knows where that's going or how that's playing out. There's also the Department of Homeland Security Grant Program, DHS Grant Program, and the Department of Justice JAG Program. That's the Edward Byrne Justice Assistant Grant Program. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment and cash. I covered that in an episode a couple of years ago, War on Liberty, an overview of federal programs that militarize and nationalize local police. I will link to that in the show notes. And again, another version of this is just federal funding. Sometimes they do federal funding to do surveillance equipment. There's certain programs for that. Sometimes there's federal funding to do uh, militarization, give them gear. There's programs for that. And then there's sometimes federal funding to do, well, expand their forces or do certain stuff. And here... Remember that with federal funds comes federal involvement, federal priorities, and I think eventually federal control. There's no such thing as federal loot being hand out, handed out. No such thing as a no-strings-attached situation. And here's Mike Meharry reporting on Operation Relentless Pursuit, which I think kicked off in 2019. Under that team, really bad people as well. Millions of dollars from that previous administration. And he says, as with all federal funding, the money comes with strings attached that effectively incentivize local police in these cities to align their efforts with federal policing priorities. There is no such thing as a federal policing priority under the Constitution in every situation, except maybe a very narrow group of them that I won't get into detail, but there's very little stuff that the Fed should be involved in here. So the fact that the Feds are driving this means it's totally upside down. Officers assigned to the ORP will work in coordination with the U.S. Attorney's Office and other relative federal agencies to investigate targets involved in gang, drug trafficking, and other violent crime-related issues. Of course, they want to make us uh, think that they're going to help keep us safe, but they're really all about controlling us. And here from the uh, administration's Safe for America plan from the White House, they've got a plan that they announced just recently. What was the date of this? August 1st, 2022. This is a, um, a press release, a briefing from the White House. They want to fund the feds are going to give us 100,000 additional police officers. I'm not sure where in the Constitution there's anything about police officers being and the federal government at all, especially like your local state, and local, like what the hell are they getting involved for? And why are people OK with this? I don't understand. Funding 100,000 additional police officers who will be recruited, trained, hired and supervised consistent with the standards in the president's executive order. This, they're not capable of understanding the proper way of doing policing in each area, which could or should be different for each area in each situation. Not a homogenized, nationalized blob. 
They want to advance effective, safe, accountable community policing in order to enhance trust in public safety. 100,000 new federally funded police officers. Now, you may think this is just partisan, even though I mentioned that the previous administration had this relentless pursuit garbage. But just last year, this guy, Hawley, I guess, from Missouri, a senator or something, he had the same plan. He rolled out in June of 2021, he rolled out his own legislative agenda to hire 100,000 new police officers, boost police morale, and keep American families safe. They're keeping you safe by stealing money from you, funneling it to the feds, having a bureaucracy, and then drizzling a little bit less down to local law enforcement, encouraging local law enforcement, giving them the cash to focus on what the feds want them to do, which is almost always unconstitutional. So the cash flow is a huge issue. And then the number one, which ties them all together, of these top four are state-federal joint task forces. There are literally hundreds of them. Here from an article by Meharry again, as of 2016, there's like 500 or so of these on various topics. The DEA, I think they have the most. Of course, the war on drugs. Oversaw or participated in 271 anti-drug task forces across the U.S. And if you really want to stop if you really want to you know, help people who have problems with drugs or deal with the crime, obviously this is not working. They've been spending billions and billions of dollars on this, and it's still around. So obviously their approach, this whole prohibition approach, is not working. But that's a side note. So there's 271 from the DEA. So it's a partnership between the DEA and local law enforcement. Through a program called Project Safe Neighborhood, the Department of Justice ran another 86 of these as of 2018. The FBI administers 160 task forces for violent gangs. The U.S. Marshals run 60 fugitive task forces, the OATF. Oh, man, they're one of the worst, but they don't have as many, but they certainly partner with most local law enforcement agencies. They oversee the National Explosive Task Force and the Forms Task Force because the of the top 10 things that the ATF prosecutes people for, I think it's like seven or eight of them are Form 4473, missing information, incomplete, filled out, some kind of thing. So they're really just throwing people in jail for paperwork errors. And local law enforcement is participating with the feds to do this. And I think what's important to note, when local law enforcement joins in on one of these federal-state joint task forces, whether it's terrorism or drugs or whatever, they're actually deputized as federal agents. And so they can violate state restrictions on their activity. So if the state has a restriction on civil asset forfeiture, well, I'm a federal agent. This doesn't apply to me. Or on surveillance, you got to have a warrant. Well, I'm no longer a local law enforcement officer. Even though I'm wearing that badge in the same outfit, I've been sworn in as a federal agent to join in on this task force. They do a lot of end runs around stronger restrictions on a state level. It's really a nefarious thing. Gun control, if they say you can't participate in gun control. So just this month, this past month, or maybe in the last couple of weeks, San Diego, after a number of years, activists got a local resolution banning certain surveillance activities. But the biggest pushback came from cops they said, well, we're going to have to withdraw from federal task forces because there's different standards here. So instead of just making them do that like they did in Missouri for the Second Amendment Preservation Act, where they are withdrawing finally from some ATF task forces around the state, in San Diego, they just caved and said, OK, as long as you're on a federal task force, you can do whatever you want. There's no restrictions on your no new restrictions on surveillance for you guys. 
And so what ends up happening in those situations, in my experience, when we look into it, is if there's a local or a state restriction and they can continue doing going around that, basically everything just becomes a federal issue. And so almost all the stuff that these federal task forces are doing, first of all, they shouldn't exist under the Constitution. The enforcement actions, the agencies shouldn't exist, the DEA, the ATF. None of these places should have, like, all these people should actually have a real job. Anyways, I covered these joint task forces in an episode uh, about a year, a little over a year ago, year and a half, State Federal Task Forces and the National Police State. I encourage you to check that one as well. So I will link to that in the show notes, 10thamendmentcenter.com slash path to liberty. So if you think about it, we've got warrantless surveillance through fusion centers, gear through federal grant programs, military equipment through federal grant programs, federal funding to expand local police departments, and then partnerships that directly turn local police into federal agents. And I think this is a an unconstitutional national police force. This is something that the founding generation absolutely rejected. And I'm really just scratching the surface, not really talking much about gun control and civil asset forfeiture and the like, but they all kind of tie in together. Now, this is not awesome news, but again, this is really important for people to be aware of these things. All of these programs that militarize and nationalize local police they can actually just opt out of them. Not that they necessarily want to, but local pressure, we've seen this happen in some areas. I think Missouri Second Amendment Preservation Act is the most important one out there so far where they've said, we're not going to participate in federal gun control task forces. So it's having some impact. Now it's up to the people to take things to the next level. But all of these things can be changed by merely just saying, we will not participate. And that's the kind of information we try to get out to more and more people every single day. Nothing helps us get that job done more than the financial faith and support of our members. If you'd like to join us, you can do so for as little as two bucks a month over at 10thamendmentcenter.com slash members. Again, 10thamendmentcenter.com slash members. I really appreciate you spending some of your time with me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something. That's more important than anything. I'm going to look through the uh, the comments here. Uh, maybe Happy Snowfish has to get back to work today. <laughs> so do I, actually. I got to do a little post-production here. Uh, produce your own food. Prepare to defend yourselves. Red part and the blue part, they're both all part of the problem, says Samuel. Anyways, I'm going to look through some of the comments a little bit later. Please continue leaving those because they do trigger algorithms and tell those platforms to show us to more people. So do reviews on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform. That helps out a great deal. Bonehead does not like Holly. I don't, yeah, I think the dude's terrible. I mean, what's he doing? Like federal funding of local police? I mean, just that in itself. If you support an unconstitutional program, if we, you know, I can understand how people are like, well, this dude's less bad than this guy. But you can't be in support of people who violate the Constitution constantly. And everyone just about, everyone there is violating the Constitution constantly. You can't defeat, you can't defeat violations of the Constitution by supporting them at the same time. I'm not, I'm not on board with any of these people. Someone says Massey is good. I have not looked into him very much, but I get a lot of people that I respect and support saying the same thing. Well, hopefully... There's one, but it's not changing things. We live under the largest government in the history of the world. It keeps growing. If we're focused on solutions that are federal in nature, it's going to continue in that direction. The solutions need to start moving closer to the individual because we're talking about advancing individual liberty and resistance and noncompliance on a state, local, and an individual level. For example, all this stuff that I'm talking about in this episode today, it's all about just 
opting out. You don't even have to have some kind of crazy standoff. No, we're not going to participate in this grant program. No, we're going to not going to participate in this civil asset forfeiture program. No, we're not going to collect the license plate reader data. No, we're not going to continue funding the Fusion Center. There was an effort to shut down the main Fusion Center, which is one of the worst in the country, uh, that I think is going to get another effort this coming year. So all these things actually have solutions. It's about let's not participate in violating our own liberties anymore. Anyways, I hope you guys found this interesting. I hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate you being here. Hope your Monday's off to a great start. Hope you had a great weekend, and I'll see you next time here on the Path to Liberty.